0: Let's pray again together. Almighty God, we praise you for this moment in eternity. For Lord, you have decreed that in this moment we would together consider this passage of Scripture in which you revealed your compassion, and you revealed your authority even over death. Lord, we pray that we would understand who you are through the work of your Spirit in our hearts. Lord, as we consider this passage, we pray that you would help us all to see Jesus and to know who he is, and Lord, to, to see his compassion upon us and the power that he exerted over death in our lives. For our good, for the building of your church, and for the glory of your name. Amen. Please stand with me as we consider this passage this morning. Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 11 to 17. Luke 7, verses 11 to 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of our Lord. Please be seated. Well, this morning, as we look at Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17, we're going to be taking on a subject that makes most people squirm. It's a subject that people often try to avoid. It's something they don't even want to think about. They don't even like to say the word. They they substitute euphemisms like sleep, or passing away, or breathing their last, or kick the bucket, or bought the farm. And my personal favorite, shuffle off their mortal coil. I'm speaking, of course, of death. Well, how does death make you feel? I've attended and officiated a lot of funerals over the years, and it often amazes and saddens me to see the various responses that people have towards death, especially that of unbelievers. Some people are visibly grieving, grieving over the loss of the person and over the life that they once knew. We'd expect that. Some are stoic, just responding with a a stiff upper lip. Some are in denial, seeing death as natural, as a part of life. Friends, death is not natural, and death is not simply a part of life. Some are in shock, having absolutely no idea how to process what has taken place in their emotions. Some are confused, entertaining bizarre ideas about the afterlife. Some are fearful, not knowing what to expect in life without the person who has died, and considering their own mortality. But next to sadness, I believe the most common response to death is anger. People are angry in the face of death. They're angry at themselves, they're angry at God, they're angry at those who they feel are responsible, and they're even angry at the deceased. And even when we don't know the person who has died, we, can, we are capable of these responses, even to a very strong degree. We're watching a whole nation expressing a mix of, of heartbreak and outrage at the deaths that have taken place at the hands of the police in the United States. And particularly at the death of George Floyd. Maybe you're experiencing something similar. I, I don't want to watch the video of what took place. Once you've seen those images, you can't unsee them. We should be heartbroken at such wickedness. We should be filled with righteous indignation, even wrath. Would it surprise you to hear that Jesus had similar emotions at the face of death? Jesus encountered death at key junctures in his ministry. Each time Jesus encounters death, Jesus defeats death. When the author of life encounters death, death must yield. The account of the raising of the widow's son here in Luke chapter 7, 11 to 17 is only found in Luke's gospel account. Matthew, Mark, and Luke relay the raising of Jairus' daughter. John relays the raising of Lazarus, an event that is going to occur later in Jesus' ministry. And I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes about this one because I think it provides insights to the passage that we're going to be studying this morning. Please turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 begins that a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Martha. We're given a little bit more information. that This was the Mary who anointed Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was ill. And so Mary and Martha sent for Jesus saying, Lord, he who you love is ill. And Jesus replied, this illness is not to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. John tells us that Jesus loved Mary and her sister, and Lazarus. Well, what would you do if you found out that someone that you loved was sick? What would you do if someone you loved was very sick and that you had the ability to heal them? I think most of us would say that we would drop everything and get there as quickly as possible. Well, Jesus didn't. We're told that he loved them. Read in verse 6, doesn't make sense, at least, in, at least at first. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 tells us that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and God's ways are not our ways. That as the heavens are higher than the earth, so also are God's ways higher than our ways and God's thoughts higher than our thoughts. So although it confuses us, it it really shouldn't make us concerned that God had another plan. When Jesus finally arrives in Bethany, fully four days after Lazarus' death, Martha came out to, to meet him and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. Now Jesus is being intentionally, intentionally ambiguous here. He could be referring to the general resurrection, which is how Martha viewed it, but he's saying a whole lot more. Martha responds saying that Lazarus will rise again at the resurrection on the last day. She's showing a remarkable understanding here. Jesus replies, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. These are remarkable words. This is one of the the I am statements where Jesus is declaring that he is Yahweh. He is the I am. But R.C. Sproul paraphrases it. I hold the keys of life and death. I am the foundation, the power of life itself. And I have the power to raise dead people from the grave. I don't just teach the resurrection. I am the resurrection. I am the very power of God unto life. Jesus asks Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that I grant eternal life? Do you believe in me? I need to ask you the same question. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is able to raise people from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus is able to raise you from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus will raise you from the dead on the last day and that you will go before the judgment seat of God and that your only hope, your only hope is through the death and the life of Jesus? Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Martha replied, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha affirmed that she believed and testified that Jesus is the Christ. Well, then Martha sent for Mary, telling her that that Jesus wanted to see her. And so, Mary went quickly and then fell at Jesus' feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Well, now let's see Jesus' response in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. i just got to say that that is not a good translation. In fact, the only English Bible that I know of that actually gets this right is the New Living Translation. That's not something I've ever said before, and I'm not very likely to say it again. Most say something like deeply moved. But in extra-biblical literature, the Greek word is used to describe a war horse snorting in anger. This is reflected in the Bible, where this this word commonly refers to, to indignation. It's anger. Then in verse 35, Jesus This is the shortest verse in the Bible. But it's packed with importance. Jesus is revealing his humanity. He's revealing his grief. But this isn't mere sympathy. Jesus is angry. Greatly troubled doesn't get it either. The Greek says here that Jesus agitated himself. B.B. Warfield explains that Jesus' anger, explains Jesus' anger, he says, it is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. Jesus came to destroy death, and him who has the power over death, the devil. Hebrews two fourteen. And then as Jesus approaches the tomb, he feels the same violent emotion that he's feeling in verse 33. Here John Calvin's vivid depiction of our Lord's response to death. Christ does not approach the sepulchre as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepares for a contest. And therefore, we need not wonder that again he groans for the violent tyranny of death, which he has had to conquer. It is placed before his eyes. Jesus lifts up his eyes and prays, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account for the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. Jesus didn't pray for his own benefit, but to reveal his relationship with his father. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. But Jesus didn't yell loudly here just so that Lazarus could hear. He could have whispered to the same effect. This was also for the benefit of of the elect standing around. This is, there's no verb in the Greek. It's literally, hear, out. Briefly walking through the raising of Lazarus, I want you to note the response of Jesus to death. Yes, he was grieved, but more than that, he was enraged. This morning we're going to see another starkly different, but no less powerful response from our Lord to death. He was moved with compassion is moved with compassion. Yes, this passage reveals a new development in the display of Jesus' power as he demonstrates authority not just over demons and disease but over death itself. But just as importantly, this passage reveals God's compassion for the plight of his people. There are three key movements in this passage. In verses 11 and 12, we see the death of the widow's son. In verses 13 to 15, The resurrection by the lord's power and in verses 16 and 17 the witness in the crowd's response so first of all the death of the widow's son verses 11 and 12. verse 11 begins soon afterward he went to a town called nain now this change in time and location marks a new section but this account is still related to verse one, verses 1 to 10, where Jesus had healed the centurion's slave. This is the only time that Nain is mentioned in the Bible. It like re- refers to the modern town by the same name, 10 kilometers south of Nazareth and about 30 kilometers southwest of Capernaum, about a, a, about a day's journey from Capernaum where he had healed the centurion's son, servant rather. A great crowd was follow, was following Jesus. As I mentioned at last week, at this point in Jesus' ministry, there was pretty much always a great crowd following Jesus. As He traveled from town to town, the crowd grew. But notice that those who followed here are are clearly divided into two groups. His disciples and the great crowd followed Him. Discipleship, remember, is is the key theme of the Sermon on the Plain in chapter 6. Well, now it's becoming more explicit that there are crowds and there are disciples. And they're about to be joined by another crowd. Verse 12, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. In ancient Israel, once death had come, the the family would would tear their garments and would, would close the eyes of the deceased, signifying death and conveying their grief. The body would then be quickly prepared for burial. It would be cleansed and anointed with fragrant spices, notably including myrrh. The body would be wrapped in burial cloths made of white linen. And then the corpse would be placed on a burial plank a, or bier, not a coffin, so that all could see. Usually, the, on the same day, there would be a funeral procession, and pallbearers would lift the body and then carry the body out of the gates of the city for burial. And crowds following would include paid mourners and pipers playing flutes. And Jesus arrived just as the funeral procession was approaching. The city gates. His arrival was timed for this very moment. As with the death of Lazarus, Jesus arrived right on time. Now he could have gotten there before the man died, but he providentially arrived at this very moment. This was a divine appointment predetermined before the foundation of the world. There would have been many funerals in the towns that Jesus visited in the course of his ministry, but Jesus chose to raise this particular man in this particular town at this particular time. This was timed, at least in part, where there would be the maximum number of witnesses. We're told that the the man was the only son of his mother and that she was a widow. She was now all alone with no with no male protector or provider, a childless widow in that culturally, culture would be particularly vulnerable. She would have been deprived of not only support but of social status in the village since her son's death also meant the end of the family line for her. These are details that Luke often highlights since he's focusing on Jesus' ministry to, out, to the outcast and to the vulnerable. Remember that Jesus had declared at the outset of his ministry that the good news to the poor was the hallmark of his messianic mission, uh, Luke 4.18. And we'll see next week how he repeats this to the emissaries of John the Baptist as evidence that he is the Messiah in Luke 7.22. The large crowd from the city also reveals how the widow's predicament drew compassion from the citizens of the city. They, They cared about the woman and her loss. Well, the crowd had compassion, but they couldn't do anything about it. Have you ever been in a a situation where where somebody you care about was going through something horrible? You're you're filled with compassion. Your your heart breaks for the person, but you're powerless to change their circumstances. Now, at at, at such a time, it's entirely appropriate appropriate just to be there with them, to to just sit quietly with them like Job's friends should have done. You can also tell them that you love them and and tell them that you're praying for them and then actually pray for them. Lift them up to the one who can change their circumstances or even better, lift them up to the one who can change them through their circumstances. What was about to take place wouldn't have even entered into the minds of those gathered on that day. Those in the crowd weren't the only ones to have compassion on the widow. Next, let's see the resurrection by the Lord's power in verses 13 to 15. Jesus saw the grieving widow walking slowly along next to her son's bier, following along next to the body of her beloved son, the only person she had left in her family in the world, or so she thought. Just think again for a moment about Jesus' response at Lazarus' tomb. He was full of wrath, enraged at death, and at the one who had power over death. He cared deeply for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, to be sure, but the emphasis was on Jesus' anger at death, and his anger at the devil. He came to destroy both. But this time, the emphasis is different. Verse 13, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Now this word that's translated compassion here also includes the idea of of great affection and love. Jesus had never met this woman before, but he knew who she was. He was greatly concerned for her. And he tells her, Do not weep. But notice how Luke here refers to Jesus. He says, The Lord Had compassion on her. This is the first time that Luke directly refers to Jesus as the Lord. It's a title he's going to use repeatedly in reference to Jesus for the for the rest of his gospel account. And Luke's is the only gospel account who uses the to use the term to refer directly to Jesus prior to the resurrection. Remember Luke wasn't a witness to these events, but he saw these events through the perspective of the disciples and other witnesses who were reflecting the authority of Jesus during his earthly ministry the lord didn't wait to be asked the leper in chapter 5:12 was healed at his own request the paralytic in 5:20 was healed at the request of his friends the slave was healed in 7:10 at the request of the centurion but the widow's son would be healed without any request jesus took the initiative. He reached out to help. He approached her as she walked along next to her son's lifeless body and told her not to cry. In that moment, that instruction would have made no sense to her or to anyone around. Crying was the only thing she knew how to do in that moment. But in the next, it would become clear why Jesus said this. The Lord said to the woman, do not weep. Brothers and sisters, Do not weep. Jesus has compassion on you. Just think about your circumstances prior to your salvation. What are your circumstances now? Jesus can empathize with you in your griefs, for he was the man of sorrows. Jesus knows your battle with sin. Jesus knows that that because he was tempted in every way as you are, yet without sin. Jesus knows your weakness. He knows your frame. He knows your fears. He knows your needs. He will withhold no good thing from you for he loves you. He will allow no trial to come upon your life that he has not decreed for your good and his glory. Jesus loves you because he has purchased you with his blood. Jesus' compassion on the widow provides an example for us. We're going to talk in a moment about Jesus' power. Now, that is not a communicable attribute of God. You won't grow in power. You can only grow in reliance on God's power. However, compassion is a communicable attribute of God. I wonder, are you oblivious to the concerns of others? Here's a good test. Ask yourself how aware you are of the needs of other people in the church. How often do you pray for them? Do you, have you visited them or, or called them or even texted them? You can exhibit compassion and grow in compassion through the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. So how do you grow in compassion? Well, I spoke about it a moment ago, just by even by, by just being there for somebody and, and, and simply telling them you love them and praying for them. So let's think about the specific situation before us. When, when someone is grieving, come alongside them. Don't just assume they're okay. Don't ignore them. Support them. When someone is struggling with sin, you can show compassion by not condemning them. Come alongside them and encourage them. When someone is succumbing to fear, don't look down on them, but share God's precious promises with them. When someone is grieving, support them. Support them. You get the point. Don't be selfish. Look on the needs of others and do what you can to help them. No, you won't be able to raise someone from the dead, but by God's grace, you may be able to raise someone from the depths of discouragement and despair. Jesus shifted his focus from the woman to the corpse. He reached out and touched the bier. The pallbearers stopped. They were wondering what Jesus was going to do. Surely they had heard about him and they'd, they'd heard about his miracles. But this wasn't mere sickness, this was death. Now, by touching the beard, Jesus was coming into contact with a dead body, making himself, according to their understanding, ceremonially unclean. Forever touches the de- a dead body of any person shall be unclean for seven days. Numbers 19.11. But as we discussed last week, the Lord's arrival meant the beginning of the end of the ceremonial law. And it had fulfilled its purpose in pointing to him. And in a moment, they would begin to see something of who Jesus was, though they wouldn't yet understand. Jesus spoke to the dead body. As Daryl Bach points out, this was an act that would be humorous or tragic if we're not dealing with the uniquely empowered man of God. If you or I to, were to speak to a dead body, we, we could be, it, it might be someone who would say, well, they're, just, they're consumed with grief. Or it could be lunacy. But Jesus speaks to the dead body with authority. He's going to do the same with Lazarus and with Jairus' daughter. Jesus is revealing his authority, his power, even his identity, and his role through, though these latter two are not going to become clear to the crowds as of yet. And when Jesus speaks, once dead brain waves spark. A once still heart begins to beat. Once congealed blood begins to course through his veins blue flesh takes on the pink hues of life. Muscles in rigor mortis begin to move and the cold body begins to warm. The young man sits up, still bound in his grave clothes, and speaks. Jesus spoke and the man obeyed. He sat up and began to speak. Well, I wonder what someone says at, at such a moment. Hi there. Or maybe like the kid's Christmas special, Frosty the snowman, when he, when he comes to life, he says, Happy birthday! But don't let these words slip by without considering what they say. The dead man sat up. The dead man spoke. And then Jesus gave the dead man to, back to his mother alive. And he'd already given her, him to her once as a baby. Never forget that your children Are a gift from God for as long as God has decreed. He had given him to her as a baby. Now he was giving him to her again. Now the terms here focus on the young man's mother. Although the son is the one who's been raised, the primary blessing here is described as being towards her. He is being raised and she is being restored. Now you can't demonstrate God's power. Again, omnipotence is an incommunicable attribute of God. However, you can grow in reliance on God's power. When you were in fear, rely on God's sovereignty over your circumstances. When you were sharing the gospel, rely on God's power enabling you to be bold and enabling the elect to believe. When you're fighting sin and temptation, rely on God's power to deliver you from that temptation. When you were grieving, Rely on God's power to carry you through. I'm relying on God's power even as I preach this sermon. Well, finally, let's consider the witness in the crowd's response, verses 16 and 17. The witness in the crowd's response, verses 16 and 17. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus had planned his arrival to Nain at this very moment. The miracle was timed so that the max, there would be the maximum number of witnesses. This wasn't motivated by any vain glory whatsoever. For you and I to do something, with, to have the maximum number of people seeing it, it would be pride. We'd be wanting to glorify ourselves. But Jesus knew that in this place, in this moment, in this way, God would get the maximum glory. Now, I'm sure that there are many other reasons that we can only begin to guess. But Jesus knew that through this, many would hear of him and his saving power. The crowds were there as witnesses. And so they interpret and report what has taken place. Now they realize more fully what Jesus is capable of. They realize that God's power is at work through him. Because raising someone from the dead reveals God's power. Gerald Bach says, Luke turns from faith as the ground for healing to an examination of healing as the basis for popular confession of Jesus. Though, again, the crowds didn't yet fully understand who Jesus really was. Verse 16, fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. So they respond from, with fear. And Luke often uses this word to describe the emotional response to Jesus. Awe and respect. The people are awestruck and they glorified God. This is another common response to Jesus that we see in Luke's gospel account. The people declare that a great prophet has risen among us. Now they had been looking for a long time for a prophet like Moses whom God would raise up. Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18. And this miracle would have brought to their minds Elijah and Elisha, both of whom raised a widow's son from the dead. Elijah in 1 Kings 17, 18 to 24, and then Elisha in 1 Kings 17, uh, 8 to 23. Now the miracle that's performed through Elisha is a testimony that Elisha has taken up Elijah's mantle. And Jesus is being presented in similar terms. He's the man of God who wields divine power, much as we saw last week. But embedded in this account is the fact that while Elijah and Elisha interceded to the Lord in order to, to, to raise the, the dead boy, and that the Elijah and Elisha had to expend effort to revive the boy, Jesus simply speaks to the corpse. Jesus is more than a prophet. He is the Lord, as Lucas told us in verse 13. Jesus is more than a prophet. He is more than a great prophet. He is more than the greatest prophet. He is the Son of God incarnate, but the people didn't yet understand who was really there with them. They were grappling with who he is. Who is this? What has he come to do? They declared God has visited his people. Now the the word that is translated visitation refers to God's gracious and powerful work on behalf of his people. God has not abandoned them. And they're beginning to understand that, that Jesus has been sent by God for them. But the vast majority won't understand what this means. Luke has already referred to the, this word visitation to speak of the coming of the Messiah in Luke uh, 1, 68 and 78. He's going to refer to it again in, in Acts fifteen fourteen. And Jesus will later point out that Israel has missed God's visitation. Luke 19, 44. And the crowd glorified God. But I wonder how many of those crowds Change sides. Remember, there were two people in that group. There were crowds and there were disciples. I wonder how many of those crowds became disciples. And this report about him, verse 17, spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. This is another common element in Luke's writing that word about Jesus spreads. Jesus' fame is spreading throughout the whole nation. Now, not all would hear the news and marvel at who Jesus is. For some, it would only fuel their hatred. Remember, in the case of Lazarus, that when the Pharisees found out that Jesus had raised him, they, wanted to, they doubled down their efforts to kill Jesus, and they even wanted to kill Lazarus to destroy the evidence. Friends, evidence, no matter how powerful, will never overcome sinful presuppositions. What's required is the work of the Holy Spirit in a hard heart. But word, it seems, has gotten all the way to Macarius, south of Galilee, on the east side of the Jordan River, on the east coast of the Dead Sea, where John the Baptist was imprisoned. This passage also prepares the reader for the interaction with the emissaries of John the Baptist that we're going to see next week in Luke 7, 722, where Jesus declares that the dead are raised. He's saying, I am the Messiah, and a time of of major eschatological fulfillment has come. So Jesus came to overcome the effects of the fall. Romans 5.12 says that, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Because of Adam's rebellion, sin and sadness and grief and death are part of life. Temporarily. This is not how life was meant to be. This is a temporary situation based on the curse because of Adam's sin. And most of us in this room have been touched personally by death. One day all of us will be touched personally by death if the Lord tarries. Death is inevitable for all. Every person in this room will one day die unless the Lord comes back first. But in this resurrection, we see that there's going to be a general resurrection. That not only this man, but that all people will die. John five twenty and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In this passage, Jesus is revealing great compassion and great power. He took the initiative to help a grieving widow, restoring her dead son to full health. And restoring her to her position and to her, her place in the community. Jesus has defeated death. Jesus is going to defeat death on another occasion. Jesus is going to defeat his own death. He'll be crucified and killed for your sins and my sins, but the grave will not hold him. Jesus came to overturn the effects of the fall. This is a foretaste of what is to come. Not only does he demonstrate his authority over death and his own resurrection, but the resurrection when all believers will go to be with him forever. Yesterday, Milton Vincent, the one who wrote the the excellent book, The Gospel Primer, wrote something in, re- in response to, to what is taking place in the United States. This is what he wrote. He said, I suffocated a man once, it took him six hours to die, not minutes, hours. I crushed him with my sin after nailing him to a tree. I crushed him because he was innocent and I was not. I was not alone in my crime, but this fact in no way lessens my guilt. Mine was the sin that killed him. He was hastily buried, but true story, three days later he came back to life and was seen by many. Darkest fate should have hounded me, but he pursued me and found me and forgave me. And he is now my friend. He is my savior. His name is Jesus, and he is saving others too. I'm a different man now. Though The ruthless streak still lurks within me. I've killed others in my heart in moments of anger and hate. But Jesus helps me to repent, and he forgives me for those crimes too. I love him with a love that grows hotter by the day. Because of him, I'm learning to love others too. Because of him, I pray for the loved ones of a man who died this week beneath another man's knee. I pray for the man whom that knee belongs I pray that a careful and God-honoring justice prevails. I pray that our divided country beset by evil that runs through every heart. I pray that, uh, that all will see that Jesus is the perfect Savior for such a time as this. As Joshua mentioned earlier in the pastoral prayer, the gospel is the only solution to the hatred and violence that is taking place in the United States, and the gospel is the only solution to the hatred and the violence that takes place in our hearts. You and I were dead. More dead than that young man. You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins when Jesus spoke life into us. Remember Jesus' words to Martha. In John eleven twenty five 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus defeated death for you. Jesus defeated sin for you. Jesus defeated the devil for you. Romans 8, 11, 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Walk in the victory that he has achieved. Walk in the power that he has achieved for you. You and I can't do anything about death, but Jesus can. When death encounters the author of life, death must yield. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the author of life. You are the author of life for that young man who was raised back to his mother 2,000 years ago. And we rejoice in the fact that it seems that George Floyd has been raised to life also through Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the fact that we also will be raised from death to life through Jesus Christ. We praise you, Lord, that you have power over death, not just physical death, but an even more deadly death, spiritual death. And so, Lord Jesus, we trust you. We turn our hearts to you. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in you, to experience and to, to rest in your compassion to us, Lord, and to trust your power towards us through the gospel. We pray this in your omnipotent name. Amen.